Here we are, uh, week three, in our series of the life of Joseph called A Legendary Tale, and I just want you to know I am refusing to call this the Corona Series, but in reality, it's matching up with this worldwide shutdown that we have going on the very first Sunday of it, when they, which I can't believe we're in the middle of, not being able to meet as a congregation. This just still blowing my mind, but... It started on the very first Sunday of our series, and um, I'm refusing to call it that. It's still going to be Joseph, a legendary tale, if you're okay with that. And today we're in part two of the sermon we started last week entitled, Lessons on Ruining Your Family. If you're just joining us and you weren't with us last week, no, we are not learning on how to ruin our families. We're learning lessons from this family in Genesis chapter 37 of Jacob and Rachel and their family. And we're learning lessons on how not to ruin our family from the lessons that they had to learn the hard way that ruined their family. And so last week we were on lessons from a weak dad and we explored the dangers and we mused on the abusive effects of permissive and passive parenting. We learned that permissive parents were the do-whatever-you-want parents that just let their kids do whatever they feel like doing, and the passive parent is the whatever-I-don't-care-what-you-do parent, and we found that both of those, the product of that kind of parenting, are what we're calling spoiled children. Now, I want to go back to the definition we used for spoiling because today's message is lessons from spoiled children. But I want you to see this definition, this working definition that we're going to use. Spoiling is to ruin or destroy the value or quality of something or someone. Last week we talked about the fact that when you spoil your child, you end up harming their character by being too lenient and allowing them to be too indulgent. And scripture shows us that when you spoil a child by withholding discipline, That's how you spoil them. Or you withhold and shield them from the consequences of their sinful attitudes and behaviors. You end up spoiling them. We saw in Proverbs 29, 15, that discipline, if you discipline your child, it produces wisdom. It produces something that they will grow in. It produces maturity in our children. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And we're going to see in Genesis 37, in this story today, how it not only brings shame to his mother, but it breaks the heart of the father. So take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 37. Hopefully you've got your Bible handy and you've got it out ready to go. We're going to jump into God's word here in this story. And we're going to see in this story the unhealthy, weak parenting that will end up setting the children on the path of pain and suffering because of the permissive and passive leadership of their parents, which isn't leadership at all. And um, so today's our lessons from spoiled children. Let's go ahead and jump in. Genesis chapter 37, um, verse 2. Now this is a This is a story, so it's going to run as a narrative, and what we're going to do is we're going to run all the way down through the chapter, and I'm going to jump in and out with some practical application, if that's okay. So here we go, Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob and his family when Joseph was 17 years old, so keep that in your mind, he's 17, he's a teenager, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, 
But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Now, if you're taking notes and you don't know that there are notes and you want to take them, you can go on our app and there's a place for you um, to take notes on this. The first thing in our notes that we're going to see in this story is the bad report. Um, The end of that verse 2 is, but Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. We're doing. Now, I want to hear you loud and clear. Say it out loud wherever you are. I want to hear what is another name for a bad report? Are you saying it? Okay, I can't hear you. You're going to have to say it louder. What is another word for a bad report? When I grew up, it was called a tattletale whenever I grew up. I don't know about you guys. I don't know if that was what it was when you were, but Nobody liked a, a tattletale. Now, kids, um, I know we have some kids, and I want my, my grandkids are watching right now. I want you to lean in and listen to Poppy real careful right now. So just get close to the TV. Come on. Get right in there. Get right in close to the computer. Whatever you're watching on, whatever instrument you're using to watch on, I want you to hear this, kids. This is never a good idea to tattle on your brothers and sisters. There is nothing uglier. We saw this last week. We said this last week. There is nothing uglier than a spoiled child. So if your parents are spoiling you, you need to just say to mom and dad, stop spoiling me because I don't want to be ugly when I grow up, okay? Because there's nothing uglier than a spoiled child. But hear me now. This is very important today. There is nothing more annoying than a tattletale. You hear it? Keep that in your mind. And if you can write, write that down. Parents, write it down. And keep telling your kids, there's nothing more annoying than a tattletale. We're going to see that in this story right here. Now, let me just stop and say, kids, you need to listen to this and your parents need to listen to this. In some extreme cases, it might be called, some extreme cases call for us to go and tell somebody in authority what is happening. Whenever someone's injuring someone else or there's danger involved or somebody's breaking a law and you're in danger or you see somebody else in danger, then you need to go talk to an authority over that. Um, but I want to say this, it's, it's never a good idea to become a tattletale in this kind of case right here. And parents, it's not a good idea to teach and encourage your children to do this. This is the kid that comes, always is coming to mom and dad, always coming to someone in authority saying, Johnny's taking the toy, Johnny's working on it, he's doing this and I don't like it, he's ripping the doll off the Barbie again, or Susie's sitting on my bike and I don't like it, or she's not being nice to me and she's not sharing her toys. Those are the things that we're talking about here because I can't even imagine what his brothers are doing out in the field that he has to go back and give a bad report to his parents about. They're out tending the sheep. Maybe they're throwing pebbles at the sheep. Maybe they're picking on each other. I don't know what the deal is, but what we find here is we've got this spoiled child, Joseph, who is going and giving his father a bad report, and this isn't the first time that he's done it. He's actually being trained to do this because his father is encouraging him to do this. It reminds me, when I talk about this, it reminds me of um, my kids went to college in in a college that's a very strict college and had a lot of rules, And the college actually rewarded people who were tattling on other people. They would reward you if you would come with a bad report from your roommate or from somebody in the school that you saw maybe bending or breaking the rules. And they also punished you. You didn't do anything. 
your, your buddy did or your roommate did, and if they found out that you knew that they did it and you didn't come and bring a report, you would get punished, you would get penalized, and you would be judged for not being spiritual because you weren't willing to rat out your friends at college. Now, I want to tell you why this is dangerous. What we teach our children and what we encourage in our children will be acted out when they're adults. They will become tattletales as adults because that's what happens. We train our children up to be something we want them to be in their adult lives. And the Bible is actually talks opposite of that in Matthew 18. Whenever you find your brother in a fault and you find your brother doing something wrong, the Bible doesn't say go find somebody in authority and tattle on them. The Bible says that you, my friend, you need to go to your brother because in most cases and with most issues you have about your brother's behavior can be worked out through mutual humility and mutual submission, which is what God requires of his people. We need to teach our children how to go to each other and help each other in humility and in submission to each other and help them work out whenever things aren't going the way they are and not be tattletales like we find here. Now furthermore, I wanna say this, um, they're not gonna get away with it anyway. People that are doing wrong aren't gonna get away with it and I can promise you that because the Bible promises us that. In fact, Proverbs 5.21, listen up kids. A man's ways are in full view of the Lord. In other words, God sees everything you're doing and all of the things you do, even in private when you're all by yourself. God is, your, your things that you're doing are in full view of the Lord and he's examining every step you take. Numbers 32, 23 says, you can be sure of this, your sin will find you out. Guaranteed, my friends, that this tattling that was going on in this family by Joseph didn't help his relationship with his brothers. We're learning lessons from spoiled children. And whenever you've got a child that is tattling on everybody else about everything that they're doing, it's always gonna break relationship. And I know this wasn't the first time, and it's not gonna be the last because in verse 14, Jacob is actually gonna send Joseph to go check out what his brothers are doing and bring him a report. So let's move on. And uh, from the bad report, and let's move to a beautiful robe here that we find in chapter 37, verse 3. We're going to see what kind of damage this robe that Joseph is famous for um, caused in the family. So verse 3 says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. And we saw last week how horrible it is to favor one child over another. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph a beautiful robe. This is what we all know is the multicolored robe of Joseph's multicolored robe. But his brothers, look at verse four, hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them and they couldn't say a kind word to him. Now we saw last week the devastating effects of spoiling and favoring a child. Well, what this robe represents when you do this kind of thing with your children and you give your children special gifts over the other children, you are, it, is, it becomes an in-your-face, every single day reminder to all the rest of your kids that we don't measure up and that we aren't special and that dad and mom don't love us as much as they love Joseph. And it drove their hatred to the point that the Bible says here that they couldn't even say a kind word to him. Now, parents, is it coming through loud and clear? 
that it's never a good idea. Proverbs 28, 21 says, showing partiality is never good. It was bad enough to love Joseph and show affection to him more than anybody else, but when they bought that special robe, you had to do a study on that sometime because there were all kinds of ramifications to this robe that he had. Interesting study, and it just drove a deeper wedge and deeper hatred between the kids in the home. Lessons for us to learn. Let's look at a bewildering reality here in verse 5 through 11. Continue on the story in verse 5. One night, Joseph had a dream, and we told his brothers about it. They hated him more than ever. Now, here's a question. Ask yourself the question in the passage here. Do you think Joseph knows that his brothers hate him at this point? The answer is yes. If you're shaking your head, good job, because there's absolutely hatred here because of the robe, all right? And they hated him. So, and it was obvious to Joseph that they hated him because they wouldn't even say a kind word to him. So you can know that the, how that goes. You've seen it in your own home. Get out of here, Joseph. We don't even want you around. When I read the scripture and I see Joseph has a dream and he's going to go tell his brothers about it, sometimes I read things and I want to scream out, Bad form, Joseph. Don't do it. Are you, are you truly that stupid is what I want to scream out. Do you not know that your brothers hate you so much that they can't stand to be in your presence? They can't even say a kind word to you. And somehow you reached down into the wisdom well and pulled up the idea, hey, I think I'm going to go tell my brothers this dream that I have, and I'm going to tell you the dream here in just a second. We're going to read it. Not a good idea to tell them dream number one the bundles of grain, and I want to kind of act it out if you let me, okay, on Genesis 37, verse 6. Here's what happened, right? Here's what happened. Hey, listen, guys. Listen to this dream that I had. I had a dream last night, and you're not going to believe it. We were out in the field, and we were tying up our bundles of grain, and suddenly, my bundle stood up. And your bundles, this is crazy, you guys, you aren't going to believe it. Your bundles all gathered around and bowed low. Think about those two words. Bowed low to my bundle. And his brothers responded, you've got to be kidding. That's an awesome dream. I've never heard of such a great dream. What does it mean, Joseph? What do you think God's trying to tell you? Is that how they responded? Not according to the passage here. And you know it's not going to work that way anyway. His brothers responded, verse 8, so you think you will be our king, do you? You little spoiled punk. Do you actually think that you will reign over us? And the scripture says they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way that he talked about him. They hated him all the more because this kid came in and told him the dream. Now, I've got, to ask, I've got to ask you the question. So pause on the story, and let me ask you this question. Is this a prophetic dream? In other words, is it a miraculous, supernatural visitation of revelatory enlightenment where God is showing Joseph what would happen in his future? What's the answer to that question? Is it prophetic? Absolutely. How do we know that? It's because we've read the story before. 
If you've read the story before, then you know that this dream is actually going to happen. Now let me ask you this. Did, their, did his brothers have this perspective on the dream? There's no possible way they could have. So we've got to read the Bible according to the way it was at the time and to understand the hatred that came out of their brothers. See, the brothers weren't like, whoa, Joseph, man, God spoke to you. How awesome is that? What does it mean, Joseph? They didn't say that. There was no way that they could have had that perspective because to them it was just a silly, stupid dream that their spoiled, rotten brother, their favored brother, was coming and throwing up in their face. In fact, for all they know, he could have been making it up. And their anger that they have towards him, the hatred that was even stronger than before, was not driven by the fear or frustration of the thought that somehow they were really going to bow down to Joseph because they didn't think they were at all or at all going to do that. They were just sick of the in-your-face, I'm-so-special attitude of their little brother. And don't miss this, okay? Verse 8 has, at the last very part of verse 8, look at it. They hated him all the more. Why? Because of the way that he talked about the dreams. To me, this is proof that, that we've got a spoiled child here. Now, when I was a kid, I got to admit to you, when I was a kid growing up hearing this story, I had in my mind that Joseph was this wide-eyed, innocent young guy wearing his robe, and he was just, he was just, I don't think so, my friends. I think he was spoiled rotten, and I think at this point, and his 17 years old, no offense to 17-year-olds, but you're not all that you think that you are. And you're not as mature as you think that you are. In fact, a lot of immaturity comes out of 16 and 17-year-olds. It's kind of like the height of immaturity sometimes. And you're making decisions that are stupid, like Joseph. How stupid was it to think that he could come and tell this kind of thing to the brothers who hate him, and they're going to be impressed by it? In fact, he didn't learn his lesson. We're going to get to dream number two here in verse 9 of the sun, moon, and the stars. Let's continue on. So soon, Joseph had another dream. Now, the first one, we all agree, didn't go so well. Right? You with me? They hated him all the more, all right? So the second dream has comes here now, and jo jo soon, verse 9, Joseph had another dream, and again, 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 he told his brothers about it. Listen, guys, I had another dream, he said. This, this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down before me and bowed low before me. There's that bowed low again. This time, he told the dream to his father as well to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? My friends, I got, I, I've got to tell you, I think Joseph is on some, some kind of ego trip or something here because he didn't even have the brains enough and learn the lesson from the last telling of a dream. He didn't have enough sense that it might not be a good idea to go voice this one as well. And oh, by the way, I think I'm gonna tell mom and dad. It went so well last time. I think I'll tell mom and dad that they're gonna bow low before me also. Not a good idea. Verse 11, but while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Now, I want you to, you may be wondering why I'm calling this the bewildering reality. And here's why I'm calling it that. The, be the bewildering reality is that God would entrust and plant a prophetic dream into a spoiled, favored, 
immature, egotistical teenager who doesn't have enough sense to keep these dreams to himself and know that it was going to cause division with his brothers. But that's how God works. Aren't you glad that God doesn't hold his favor and that God doesn't hold his plans that he has for you laid out before the foundation of the earth? That he doesn't hold back until you get your act together. Aren't you glad? I am. In fact, there are some of you listening right now and you want a relationship with Jesus Christ. You want a relationship with God, your Father, but your past is so screwed up and you have failed in so many ways that you can't imagine how God would allow you to come to him and to his holiness and into his presence and that you can't imagine that you could come and find life in Jesus Christ until you figure out a way to clean your act up. My friends, let me tell you something. You're totally missing it if that's your view. Because the Bible says clearly that God loves you so much that while you are still sinners, he sent his son Jesus to die for you and pay the price so that you can have eternal life and that you can have your life changed. If you're waiting until you get your act together and you get your life figured out, you'll be waiting until your death day because you'll never get it figured out. I am so glad that we have stories like this, that we see God supernaturally coming in and superintending over the life of his child because he's got great plans for Joseph, even though Joseph is so spoiled and favored and immature and egotistical. God entrusts and plants dreams of future ministry plans and purposes that he has planned out in advance for his people and he plants those into weak, broken, emotionally unstable, immature people because he has plans to use them to do great, big, supernatural, epic, kingdom-building things through them. This is what I'm calling the bewildering reality for every one of us, that God is at work even in the weakest of his children to accomplish according to the power that is at work within us, not the power that we have, but the power that is at work within us through the Holy Spirit to do what the scripture says immeasurably more than we can even ask or imagine he wants to do in your life and mine, even through our brokenness. That's what's going on in Joseph's life. What a great example for us and a great message for all of us. Now the brothers and the story, they take their flocks to Shechem and Jacob uh, sends Joseph to go out and find out how his brothers are doing and bring back a report. There's that sending out in verse 14. And what we find in verse 18, I want you to jump to verse 18 in 37 of Genesis to what I'm calling a brutal ruse. A brutal Ruse. Genesis 37, 18. When Joseph's brother saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. Question, how do they recognize him? Because <laughs> he's got his bright coat on and he's wearing it because that's what he's all about. And he's coming to his brothers with his bright coat on and they can see him at a distance. And as he approached, they made plans to Kill him. How, and how discouraging is that? 
Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Man, what drives this kind of anger and this kind of hatred for somebody, especially within your own family? As I was studying this week, I came across this definition of um, anger, and I really hadn't seen it this way before, and I really thought it was great, so I want to give it to you. Write it down somewhere. Anger is an emotional expression of pain, loss, and disappointment. That is so true. And in this case, it is the result of the lack of acceptance and approval of a father's love and a father's favor. Jacob's favor on Joseph has been interpreted as rejection by his brothers, which has led to disappointment in their lives and in their hearts and what they truly desire and need from their father, and it led to anger, which spirals down into jealousy and resentment and envy, which bottoms out into hatred and rage, which ultimately ends to, with murder. They want to kill their brother because they're so upset. Interestingly enough, and I, I've got to do more study on this because I, I don't know the human heart enough to understand this fully. But it's interesting to me that this anger that they had and this disappointment and this pain, they didn't take it out on their dad. Who are they mad at? Who are they not receiving from that they really need to receive from? It's their dad. And yet, they act out on their brother. They're mad at their dad why didn't they just go kill their dad? Why didn't they say, hey, guys, you know what? Let's just go home and take dad out. We're so disappointed in him. Instead, they take it out on Joseph. And I, I, I believe it's because he, Joseph, got what their hearts desired. And this is what our hearts do when we're deprived of what we want. In fact, you can go to the book of James, and you can see in the book of James where the question is asked, why are there fights and quarrels among you? And the answer is, it's because you don't have what you really want, and so you fight to get it. You want it so much that you're willing to fight and bicker and hurt people and actually kill each other in order to get what you want, and we're seeing that played out in this family, and it's because the father has withheld his love and acceptance and favor from the other children and gave it to one. I hope you're hearing and seeing the lessons in this verse, in this passage before us. Well, let's look at a brother's rescue. Finally, um, some kindness. <laughs> Finally, some sanity. Finally, some compassion and decency enters the story here. It's a good thing because I'm starting to get really depressed as I work through this, and I'm sure you are too, but let's look at verse 21 and see a brother's rescue. <clears throat> verse 21 when Reuben heard of their scheme he came to Joseph's rescue let's not kill him he said why should we shed any blood let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness 
then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Now here's the key. This, I love this. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. Finally, some decency within the family. But you know what's interesting to me that you might not realize this if you haven't studied out the whole life of Jacob and his family is that Reuben here is the firstborn. Now in their culture, the firstborn was the one who was supposed to receive the blessing from the father, supposed to be the favored child, and supposed to receive the inheritance. If any of the 12, of the other 11, sorry, because I'm not putting Joseph, if any of the 11 should have been upset about what was going on in Joseph's life here and being favored by his father, it should have been Reuben. Because Reuben is the oldest, and Reuben was the one who was in line to receive the blessing and the inheritance, but it is Reuben who cared about his brother Joseph, number 11, and said, you know what, um, let's figure out a way to spare his life, and, and I'm going to get him out, and I'm going to rescue him. I love that. So verse 23, so when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. There's a shock, right? That's a shock to our system, that the first thing they would do is rip off the coat. No, <laughs> you totally see that coming. Verse 24, then they grabbed him and threw him into a cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, so picture this now, they take their brother, they throw him into an empty well. Okay, basically it's just a well in the ground. They throw him into this well. And then they're going to sit down and have dinner. Keep that in your mind. Just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. So these guys are on their way to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, now who is this now? This is Judah. This is not Reuben now. This is the second brother who's going to come in to the rescue of their brother. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting, which by the way, they're going to do anyway. Interesting point. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother and our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites who were Midian trader, Midianite traders, came by. Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. And Judah steps in to save his brother. Now, we're going to get into this later on in the story, but this is something that's incredibly um, significant because Judah... And I want you to hear this, and we're going we're gonna to work on this, so don't worry about figuring it all out right now. Judah is the line of the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to bring salvation to the whole world. So Judah has to be preserved. And we're going to see later on that Joseph says to his brothers, the reason that I'm here in, Israel, in Egypt is to help bring you and your families to salvation. But it is here that Judah steps in to bring salvation to his brother so that his brother can later bring salvation to Judah so that the line of the Messiah can come through and we can have salvation today in Jesus Christ. That is crazy cool that God has those kinds of plans already worked out. We think we're all doing our thing down here. No, we're not. God is in total control of all of this. We're going to work on that. But let's finally, um, let's close this thing out and look at the bitter response. 
in verse 31. The brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say. And then he would weep. What a sad story. What a sad place to be as a dad. Especially when you can look back and you can see if I had just done some things differently. My family wouldn't be as dysfunctional as they are. My family wouldn't hate each other. My family wouldn't be trying to kill each other. And my son might be alive today. I just, I wish I had a whole nother hour to talk to you right now about this alone. But I, all I want to say is it's not too late to turn things around. It's never too late. In fact, if you totally blew it as a dad, then fix it as a grandpa and turn it around. God is a God of second, third, fourth. He, he, he keeps on forgiving. He keeps on giving us chances to, to get it right and you can still turn it around. And kids, I want you to hear that I want you to listen carefully to me. Some of our dads are not going to change. And I'm sorry about that. Some of your dads are never going to be there for you. Some of our dads are dead and there's nothing we can do about it now. But no matter what you think of your dad, and no matter what kind of dad he is or was, he has and will play a vital role in who you are today. His impact on your life will continually be felt, and you're going to hear his voice in your head, whether good or bad, for the rest of your life. That's just the way it is. That's the raw reality of living in a broken world that we live in. And I just want to say to you that where our dad's conduct was a significant departure from God and his word, it leaves a significant wound in all of us that needs to be healed. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. That God is here in our midst 
And he's here to heal the hurt caused by human father wounds and to fill the void of human father failure. What we learn from Joseph's story is that God is always in our lives. And he's always superintending over every detail of our lives, no matter who we are, no matter who our parents are, no matter how much dysfunction is all around us, no matter how much we've caused the dysfunction, he is always working. Even when things are going really wrong, God is in the middle of it. I want to close with this verse in Zephaniah 3.17 and just draw a conclusion to this. For the Lord, your God, is living among you. How awesome is that? If you are his child, he is living among you. He's here. He's in the middle of your circumstance. And the Bible says here, he is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. And with his love, he will calm all of your fears. And he will rejoice over you with joyful songs, even if your earthly father never rejoiced over you. Your heavenly father is rejoicing over you and singing over you. And he delights in you. And you need to hear that. God is not a passive and permissive father at all, quite the contrary. He is your personal, present, passionate, loving Father who is fully acquainted with who you are and where you are, and you are the subject of his affection. He's not favoring one person over another. He's not favoring his own son, his own perfect son over you. He actually sacrificed his own perfect son and willfully gave him up so that you can have a relationship with him. That's how much he loves you. His eyes are always on you. He's not absent. He's not careless. He's not clueless of what's going on in your life. He is always with you. His eyes are always on you. He is here right now, superintending your life, working in your life, calling you out, enlightening your heart, protecting you, providing for you, and caring about all the things that are on your heart and mind right now. God, our Father, wants to fill you up, and he wants to complete you so that your future will be so much more than your past has been. And this verse here in Zephaniah 3 says that he takes great delight in you with gladness. God loves his children. Whether or not your mom and dad do or whether or not your mom and dad did, and his love doesn't grow with our success and it doesn't diminish with our failure. How awesome is that? My friends, this love of God is our reality if you're a child of God. Not your dad, not your mom, not your siblings, not your past sins and your past regrets. Those do not define us. That God unconditionally loves us is the unchanging, certain reality promised to each one of us, his children. That's what the Bible tells us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. 
It's not reliant upon our good behavior and it's not forfeited by my bad behavior because it's not from me and it has nothing to do with me. It flows from God's grace that he has chosen to lavish upon every single one of us. As I was working on this, it took me back to this old song that I learned when I was a kid. But like many, many, many years ago, God laid it on someone's heart who had a perspective of this love and wrote these words. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies a great parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song come on sing it out oh love of god how rich and pure how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song whatever your earthly father wasn't your heavenly father is always has been and forever will be I'm going to pray and end this, and I just want to leave you with this verse, Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. Those are the people, the scripture says, that will be like trees planted upon a, a, along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat, they're not worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. My friends, listen to me. We're in the middle of some kind of weird drought right now. We're in the middle of a crisis, but I want you to understand that we don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in our wallets. We don't trust in our jobs. We don't trust in people. We don't even trust in governments. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And those of us who trust in him and make him our hope and make him our confidence in all that we learn about in the word of God, that he is in control of all things, are like trees that are planted with the roots going deep and they're not afraid of the drought and they're not afraid of the heat. In fact, in the drought and in the heat, they produce fruit. Their leaves are green and they produce fruit. My friends, listen to me. And I know you're hearing this everywhere because everybody's talking about it, but it's true and that's why everybody's talking about it. Now is not the time to retreat. 
Now is not the time to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our hope and confidence is in him. Now is the time to bear fruit. Now is the time to step in. And we've got to be smart and we've got to use wisdom, but to step in and bear fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that will make an impact. We may be more fruitful for the kingdom during this time right now when we're all separated out than we ever could be together. We don't know what God's going to do, but keep your eyes open to produce fruit. We are the trees that have deep roots that people can come and find refreshment in this time of drought because we have green leaves and we have fruit that they can enjoy. Let's share that fruit with everybody else. I want to give you an idea as we go out. Tony and Tammy Magaldi own the Golden Corral over Mishawaka. And the, the saying of the week for me has been this, use what you have in your hands during times like this. And I was talking to them and they got, God gave them, they're experts at food and large amounts of it. And because they're shut down, they decided, you know what, let's do this. Let's find out how we can take care of the people that are the first responders that are taking care of us. And they're right in the backyard of St. Joe Hospital, the fire department in Mishawaka, and the police department. So they have gone to those different um, organizations, our first responders, and said, how can we help you? And so they're going to be providing 300 meals three days a week to the hospital because those, our hospital people are working 12-hour shifts and they're putting their lives at risk for us and the first responders on the, the uh, fire department and the police department, and they're providing meals three days a week for them. And um, they've committed to 1,000 meals, and they're asking that if, if, if we would get involved also. So I think, do we have pictures of that that you guys are going to be showing? There's, there's a picture of the meals that they're packing up, and then here's how you can get involved. You can go on to Facebook funding, and you can go um, to give back to first responders, the Golden Corral, on Facebook, and you can give. The goal is $5,000. If we can come up with 5,000, they're committing to 5,000, so we could, we could provide 2,000 meals uh, for our first responders. My friends, that inspires me because this is people that are saying, what do I have in my hand and how can I use it for the kingdom? That's what we're all about. We are the trees with the leaves that will not wither in this time that are bearing fruit that others can participate in. All right, wherever you are, let's all pray together and let's close this time out. Father, we love you and thank you for your provision in our lives. And we thank you that because we trust in you, we can be different. We can have families that are united. We can, have, we can turn our lives around. We can turn that which has been bad for so many years and we can turn it around for good. And we can bring about change in our world and in our families. I ask for that, Lord. I ask for those who are right now who are sitting and feeling depressed because of their families to have hope and confidence that if they trust in you, that you can turn things around. You have, you're the great turnaround God. You, you do that all the time in our lives. So help us to trust you in that and help us to be useful with what we have in our hands to share with others during this time. It's really a drought, Lord, and the heat is on. We're counting on you to use your church, and we want to be part of what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. God bless you, my friends. We'll see you next time.